Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. One of the timeless genres of fiction is the campus novel. The story set on quiet quads and in busy classrooms, featuring ambitious students and wise faculty, and everyone just trying to figure out their place in the world. Donna Tartt's The Secret History, Zadie Smith's On Beauty, or even the Harry Potter books. All these stories explore good and evil as they appear in gown and town. But you don't have to read fiction to find compelling accounts of when evil visits academia. It arrives more often than you might think, as we learn from examining one of the most celebrated university communities in America, the Research Triangle in North Carolina, which is the three cities of Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill. Here to take us into the dark heart of one of the most picturesque college towns in the country is Rick Jackson, a native of the Tar Heel State and the author of Chapel Hill Murder and Mayhem, a brand new compendium of cases just published by the History Press. So pull out your blue composition books and get ready to take notes because class is now in session. Rick, welcome to Crime Capsule. We are delighted to have you join us. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about my book. Now, as I understand it, your background is actually uh, fairly unusual in that you were not an academic or a police officer or a judge or involved in criminal justice in any way before you became an author. You had a bachelor's in history, but you're your actual background was in the business world. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I When I uh, graduated high school, I had no intention of ever stepping foot in any other school uh, other than probably to pick up a child at some point one day in the far distant future. My wife went to uh, UNC Chapel Hill, and uh, I worked. So I worked full time, and when she graduated from college, you know, we had us a little house. We got married and, uh, you know, just kind of start our lives. But just in the business where I was working in a retail grocery store at that point, and I was like, man, you know, it's, I could see that ceiling, right? I could see a ceiling where I'm like, you know, I'm going to get surpassed by people that uh, were educated. So I was like, I need to get a degree of some kind, but I've always enjoyed history, always loved history. And so I got a bachelor's degree in history with the intention of one day possibly teaching uh, because I had really had a great teacher when I was in uh, middle school, a guy named Hillis Haygood, my seventh and eighth grade science teacher. And uh, he just really meant a lot to me. And uh, I, I had just always kind of had in the back of my mind, I might like to teach one day. And, uh, you know, sure enough, here I am after this time. But uh, yeah, then after that, you know, I got my bachelor's degree and I went into banking, so banking for uh, almost a decade. And, uh, my wife just come up, pretty much told me one day, she's like, hey, you've talked about being a teacher for years. You should you should go for it. And I did. And I've been, you know, one thing about being a teacher is uh, you do get time off. You know, we have summers off and things like that and, and breaks. So I was able to get my uh, master's degree. I got an MBA, you know, while I was still here. But, yeah, I came here. I came into teaching and writing kind of not from a background of ever thinking I would do do those things for sure. Well, so Chapel Hill uh, Murder and Mayhem, which I kind of like to think of. I, I kind of call it uh, Chapel Hill M&Ms uh, in the, <laughs> the back of my mind. <laughs> you know, it's sort yeah, of like, because there's a lot of both murder and mayhem in the book, and you get to kind of pick your 
uh, you know, pick your poison, but it's not actually your first book at all. This is your third book. Tell us about your previous ones. My brother also is a history guy. He's got a bachelor's degree from uh, Campbell University, also just like myself. And uh, we always, being Southern, uh, you know, folklore and ghost stories and history go hand in hand, right? Like this is how we remember things and how we talk about things and how we tell things. And uh, especially with the influx of people coming into the triangle, we just thought it was really important for people to know the history of where, you know, where they were at. Uh, Very important area, the triangle area, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. There's a lot of good ghost stories uh, around here. So we compiled that together and we wrote that book together in 2009. And then I kind of got into the murder stuff. I wrote North Carolina Murder Mayhem or North Carolina Eminem, if you will. And uh, that kind of goes from the mountains to the sea pretty much. I have a section for the mountains, the Piedmont and the uh, coastal plain where I pull out some of, you know, some of the big things that people may have heard of or, or, or read about or even remember, but also some uh, pretty obscure cases that they might not have. And, uh, you know, again, just to, to encourage people to learn a lot of the history of our area and just to see our of our state. I mean, I'm a, I am a North Carolinian through and through. I think this is just the best place on the face of the earth. So um, I, I want other people to, to know about it, you know, know about the history, the rich history we have here. But some crazy stuff's happened here, too, also. You, there's been a quite a quite a good bit over the years, and I guess I have to ask you, in the interests of historical uh, both enthusiasm and total lack of objectivity, did you do pirates in the previous book? Because North Carolina has some great pirates deep in its history. Yeah, no, they are. I mean, that's the thing. Like, there's so many. That's an, that's a book all in itself, right? Like North Carolina pirates. Uh, my family and I, we go to uh, Beaufort quite regularly. And, uh, oh, yeah. you know, down there, that's just like Blackbeard Central down there. And we've been to Bath and all up and down the coast. But, yeah, that's that's a book in itself. Maybe that should be one of my next projects. But uh, yeah, no, no pirates in the me. murder books. But <laughs> I'm sure they were in the business of murder and mayhem for sure. Oh, I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever about that. Um, well, tell us a little bit about Chapel Hill Eminem. Uh, how did this particular one come to be? Well, I spent, like I said, my my wife, who was my uh, girlfriend and fiance, she spent four years in Chapel Hill. So I spent four years in Chapel Hill. I think I probably built some of the facilities up there through parking tickets, in all honesty. Oh, boy. Uh, going to see her. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I have... Uh, you know, Money I mean, well I, spent, I, I think. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so 20, 20 years later, a marriage later. So uh, it, it definitely was well spent. But, yeah, I mean, I spent I basically spent four years up there myself, you know, without taking the classes, which was probably a good, probably a better experience than what she had cause she had to go through the actual schoolwork. But... Uh, it's just a beautiful, I mean, anyone who's ever been to uh, to Chapel Hill just knows that it is just a really beautiful place. Uh, one of the most beautiful places in North Carolina. Uh, it just has a special feel to it. Um, you know, the stone walls, the trees, the, the, the old buildings. Uh, I don't have the years on some of the buildings, but I mean, this university was chartered in 1793. I mean, this, this is just a part of North Carolina itself. Um, so yeah, it just it really drew me to the history of it, and also because it's such a small town, and because I was looking at something that was, uh, you know, the the murder and the mayhem aspect of it. You know, you don't expect that stuff in a beautiful small town place like Chapel Hill, but it's there, right? It's just like uh, it's it's like hidden hidden behind the beauty. 
are these uh, stories. Rick, I, I may have mentioned on this show once or twice in the past that I had the good fortune to study um, as a Blue Devil in the Triangle uh, in my earlier years and got to take um, a class or two at Chapel Hill. You know, while I was living in Durham, they had just started this kind of new program where students at the area universities could kind of take course credit at the other universities so long as you got it approved. I used to ride that bus, that Robertson bus, uh, you know, a couple days a week, back and forth, and down 15501. And, you know, I just loved walking around on the campus, and it just felt different in some of the other areas, as you say. You know, there's kind of a peacefulness and a tranquility to it and a beauty. And I'll say, you know, the kinds of cases that you describe in the book, I mean, they would have felt so foreign, so alien, you know, so distant from that kind of tranquil, uh, very placid kind of uh, relaxation that you felt as the spring light filters through the trees and the kind of, you know, the grass is nice and soft underfoot. I mean, it's, it really is remarkable that contrast that you, that you see between the beauty of the area and the depravity of some of these crimes. Yeah. And I think almost that's uh, it's almost illustrative of our society's fascination, I think, with true crime, because it is so it's so foreign to think for a normal person, I would say, to think of doing any of these things to another person right there to like hurting people or, you know, these these things are foreign to us. And I think that's what draws people to these stories is there. It's, it's almost like make-believe, right? Like you can't even imagine these things really happen and uh, in, in the world that most of us live in. And I think that's really, you know, like I said, I think that's uh, Chapel Hill really illustrates that, right? Like it's just like you've got this perfect world, but, you know, you peel a layer back of that onion and you're like, well, that's pretty terrifying. It's not as perfect as I thought it was. No, you're right. And I think uh, that's one of the reasons that North Carolina has produced so many exceptional novelists and playwrights and storytellers, you know, over the years, Reynolds Price and William Styron and just, you know, the the list is acres, you know, long. I mean, you just, you, you get that sense of folks hunting out that that blood in the soil. But let's go ahead and, and dive into some of these cases that you've got here in uh, the book. The first one is uh, really one that we're going to, we're going to, this week we're going to talk about sort of, uh, the gown of the town of gown and next week we're going to go to the town. So we're going to kind of take a look at a few cases, you know, here that took place on the university premises and, or around them. Um, and the first one that I wanted to ask you about really looked, it was almost like it kind of came straight out of a you know, a 1930s era gangster movie uh, with this this yeah, kind of absolutely, yeah. brazen, brazen kind of uh, car chase and and so forth. You call this case the hot dog stand robbery, but it was yeah. it was way more yeah. than that, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's more. It's definitely more than that. It's, it, I really should have used the word robbery, but I think that's what uh, they kind of pinned it on at the time. Is they they. They tried to say it was a robbery, but really it's, uh, like you said, it really has a lot more to it than that. Um, what a lot of people don't realize about North Carolina, you know, in 1920, you know, the Volstead Act, they had prohibition and you really, you know, you had the rise of Al Capone and these gangsters and the crime wave kind of that hit the country. But North Carolina had been dry since 1908, right? Like we we had been, 
the we had voted like way before that to uh to be a dry, dry state as, yeah as that's we right say, exactly with right. big old scare quotes around it <laughs> yeah ex- exactly but uh the when uh, you know i will say that when the uh 20s and 30s came around you did see an uptick in crime right like people were uh it became a bigger business and of course you know the newspapers had a lot to do with that too because if you are seeing reports of crime in your newspapers you're going to feel like that there's a crime wave right and that's kind of the era we were in by the time we get to 32 but chapel hill definitely had their share of speakeasies uh if you will uh there was a famous restaurant called brady's there uh i think it's back where uh I think that, uh, like a Siena Hotel or something is there now off of Franklin Street. Uh, but that was a uh, speakeasy. Uh, the, there was a place called the Blind Tiger where the village restaurants are at. I mean, the village apartments, not village restaurants, the village apartments are at. And uh, that was, you know, the village apartments are pretty famous out there. And 15501, you talked about driving into there. There was a shack that was a pretty famous speakeasy right where that building was as people drove in. So uh, they, there were definitely places where people would go and drink and do stuff that they were not allowed to do. And that leads us to kind of the story, this robbery, you know, quote, quote unquote robbery. What happened is on March 31st, 1932, uh, there again, there was a university hot dog stand on Franklin Street. And I'm not exactly sure what building is there now, like where it was. This is definitely, it's, it's on Franklin Street, but... A uh, black cuts and pulls up in front of it. a couple of guys get out. You know, they got their, you know, they're they dressed in the air. Like, again, you can imagine Humphrey Bogart with his hat on, you know, and he, he comes in and he just kind of, they sit at the counter, but they have their eyes on the manager named George Coleman. They're just staring a hole through this guy. They order, they order, get some Dr. Peppers, but they're just staring a hole right through this guy. It's late. It's later in the evening. It's about nine o'clock at night. And, uh, the the back door is open to the right, you know, it's again, before the air conditioning stuff. So they're trying to air the place out. Uh, and they just get up and walk right through the kitchen and walk out of the back door. And, and George Coleman, of course, being the manager, well, he's, he's the one that's got to find out what these guys are doing. And he follows them out there. And one of the guys is looking at an old cooler that's been thrown out there, you know, and, uh, George Coleman comes up and he's like, you know, what's, you know, what's going on? He's like, man, I'd like to buy this cooler. And he just kind of scratched his head like, what in the, what are you talking about? And the next thing you know, he gets whacked across the back of the head by the other guy with a, a stick that had been laying out there. And they just start brawling. Well, the reason they're doing this is because Coleman was not just a marriage of a hot dog stand. This guy was big into running illegal booze around Chapel Hill. So this guy is connected to different stuff so we're not exactly sure this definitely uh it sounds like a robbery but they're not trying to rob this old cooler right like they're trying to to kind of send a message to coleman but what they didn't realize is that apparently this guy coleman was uh some kind of ufc fighter before that even exists because he just starts (laughs) throwing a beating to both of these guys right like he is just fighting these guys off and I mean, they're screaming, he's screaming, but finally they, uh, he gets to the point where because of that one whack with the stick, he's bleeding so bad, he can't see, you know. And so, uh, he can't see, he ends up getting off of him and, uh, you know, he, he kind of staggers out into the street. The guys run off because, I mean, again, they just, their plan is foiled because this guy's beat them up. They jump in their car and they take off. And this is funny because, you know, Rick, the, 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 your your case here has so many 
twists and turns. It's a short case in the book. It's only a few pages, but the it was full of twists just about on every in every paragraph. And this was the first one. You know, when I was reading it, I thought, you know, these guys they got the drop on him. And typically, when you get the drop on somebody, you know, element of surprise and all that, you come out ahead. But no, he manages to take the blow, shake it off, and and turn the tables right on it. This just did not go how they thought it would go, did it? No, not at all. I mean, I'm, and again, I don't know, uh, you know, I don't know the background of uh, George Coleman or the background of the guys, but uh, I mean, they got a, they got a surprise shot off on this guy with a stick, you know, enough to make him so bloody that eventually he can't see him. So, I mean, this is a, it's a pretty good start if you're going to fight somebody. It's two guys and a blow to the head with a stick. So the fact that he was able to turn the tide on tells me this guy, uh, he, he knew a little bit of something about what he was doing. Again, probably didn't learn that being a hot dog man. Yeah, draft that ox for that Chapel Hill football team, will you? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Like I say, I don't think he learned how to do that being a hot dog stand manager, right? Like he, he was probably definitely into some other stuff. But uh yeah, so, uh, you know, again, they, they speed off. Well, right about that time, this uh, officer named Rackley, U.M. Rackley, is coming out of a movie theater, and, uh, you know, people are yelling because they know him. You know, it's a small small village, right? So they see him, and uh, they, they're like, Officer Rackley, you know, these guys just robbed this guy. They're taking off. Well, he goes, and he requisitions a car. There is a car sitting there with a fellow in there and his girlfriend. His name is Ashby Penn. Now, Ashby Penn is a son of an American tobacco company vice president named Charles Penn. So he is very, very well-connected, wealthy guy. I mean, just all-American boy, right? Handsome, has his girlfriend in the car with him. Uh, he's a junior there at UNC. His, her name was Ann Edmonds. And, uh, you know, of course, he's like, you know, let's go. Let's go get him, right? So uh, Rackley jumps on the side of the car. You know, like you said, just like on the movies, another guy, a guy named Robert Stone is walking along with him. He jumps on the other side of the board, and they just go peeling out of town. Uh, now, some newspapers that I read in my research, very few reported as there was like this car chase. It's even cooler than like what really happened. It's like there's a car chase. They're bumping each other you know, and like knocking each other around. But what really happened is the uh, the bad guys are way, they're, they're pretty good ahead of them, right? There's only one road, right, leading out of town. So we're heading towards Carlboro, and they're behind them. But eventually, uh, the car that Ashby Penn is driving gets a blowout. They fishtail a little bit, and they're like, oh, we're, we're going to have to stop. But as they're literally, as they're slowing down, as they're stopping, they see the other car ahead of them stopped. So like, well, hey, we 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 caught up to them, right? So we, we to this day we don't really know what happened to the other car, but it knocked off somehow. It's some mechanical problem. Also, as they pull up, you know, and again, this this gets a little disputed, but from the testimony of the guy Robert Stone, uh, which is totally he was uh, the ride along. Yeah. yeah, he was the ride along. So this guy's definitely, I think, he's pretty uh pretty dependable because he's not really trying to. Uh, make anybody look better or worse. But uh, when they get there, Rackley reported later that he did not want to approach the car because there was a lady in their car. He wanted to protect the lady. Uh, Stone reported that he just didn't, he, he kind of lost his nerve, I guess you'd say, right? He was put in a situation where like he's, he's chasing. It's almost like if you were seeing a dog chasing a car and then the car stops, right? They're kind of like, what do I do now? And that's kind of how he was. He was like, I don't really know what to do. Well, uh, Ashby Penn, 
again, he's all fired up and he's like, Hey, you know, well, give me your pistol. Like I'll go, I'll go arrest these guys. And he does this. The police officer gives the other guy his pistol and uh, he goes up to the car to, you know, to get these guys. He opens the door and they, uh, shots are fired. Ashby gets shot in the chest. He wounds one of the guys and they scatter. Boom. Like they, they just, uh, they're all out running all into the woods and stuff. And so, uh, Penn was, he, he was hurt bad, right? When he got shot, he, he run, he got hurt bad. Rackley at this point, when the shot started getting fired, he took off, like he took off back down the road the other way. Um, uh, again, yeah, bad guys run that's, out. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately for his reputation later oh, on, yeah. as you, as you write in the book, but yeah, so Penn, Penn is shot. He's wounded. He's yeah, shot in the bad, chest. Yeah. You said, is that right? Yeah. yeah. He gets shot. I think in the left lung. Yeah. I think his left lung is collapsed. So he, he's pretty severely wounded. Uh, Rackley's gone. He, he's in the night. The bad guys are in the night. Uh, the guy that got wounded in the car, he takes off in the car. He, he gets it started again. He, he starts driving. It's popping and wheezing, but his car starts to drive again. Uh, Stone, he goes and drags uh, Penn back into the car, and they're like, well, we're, we're just going to have to try to drive off. You know, we got to try to get him somewhere. Um, so gets in the car, uh, and starts driving, and Stone is, uh, well, no, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Stone didn't go with them when they drove. He drove him back to the car, but he goes to try to find someone to call for help, right? Like he goes to try to find a farmhouse or something. Uh, and starts driving back towards Chapel Hill. On the way back to Chapel Hill, she ends up picking up Officer Rackley, who's like walking down the street and back the other way, right? Um, so they do. They get him back. They get him back and they get him uh, patched up. They get him at the Memorial Hospital. The guys, they take off. Uh, you know, Stone, he tries to call for help, but he's, again, he's, he ends up at some farmhouse where, you know, there's not a whole lot of help they can do because everything's pretty much done. But his, his testimony later was invaluable to catching the guys, but also was invaluable, uh, unfortunately for Rackley because, you know, again, he, the story he tries to weave is that, you know, he was just trying to protect the lady in the car, uh, but it really turns out that he kind of had a, you know, a, a yellow streak there, which, uh, you know, I, I don't want to rag on him too much because I certainly was not there in that situation. But, uh, you know, well, what he, sounds like to me, Rick, is that, uh, Ann Edmonds, the lady in the car, did not need any protecting, that she was doing just fine on her own. And that if she's able to commandeer this vehicle and drive it with three good tires, you know, at breakneck speed as fast <laughs> as it could possibly go to get somebody help to the hospital, I mean, maybe she's the one that ought to be packing heat. You know what I mean? Like, she's got a spine of steel going go there. She was definitely, as the kids would call it nowadays, a ride or die, right? Like, she was there for them. Like, she, she put that thing back on, on three wheels got him back to town and uh you know again they got him patched up but it was uh it was pretty touch and go uh they were able to identify the car and they ended up arresting uh the guys uh i think the guy's name was elwood johnson uh, and the three other guys they arrested uh, but you know lucky for them really ashby penn survived if he had a died it would have been a murder charge right but like as it were it was an attempted robbery charge and uh you know, shooting him in the uh, attempted murder, probably. So I got their jail time, but really the whole situation just uh, ruined this guy Rackley. Uh, in my research, I found that uh, he he had to resign. He almost lost his house to taxes. I guess he didn't have a job after that for quite a while. He ends up becoming a constable, which at the time a constable 
uh, which different places use the term constable in different ways. But at the time, a constable in North Carolina was someone that goes out and serves papers, like civil papers, right? So, uh, you know, basically he would work for a judge and the judge would pay him a fee every time he got a summons out. Uh, he would get a fee for that. So, uh, really kind of ruined his career as a lot. Whereas before, he was very, you know, in my research, like if I go pre this date, 1932, and he was a very well-respected officer in the community. Um, Ashby Penn, he, again, he survived, but uh, he didn't live long. He died in 1950. He was 39. He served in World War II, but uh, just didn't have a, uh, you know, just didn't have a long life after that. But he did get married to Anne, and, uh, yeah, lived a, he lived a full life in a short amount of time, kind of, so to speak. But There you go. Let me, let me ask you, there were a couple questions I had about this case. I mean, one... Uh, where did you find the level of detail involved in all of these different sequences? I mean, you have the kind of the sequence at the actual hot dog stand, and we even know what they were, what these gunmen, these rum runners, you know, were ordering, you know, <laughs> kind of like what they had for breakfast, so to speak, you know, and then we have the kind of the sequence out in the woods, and then we have the sequence after that. I mean, was it all from the participants, or was it from other sources as well? Uh, mostly from, uh, you know, the participants taught, like testifying and giving uh, like kind of after action reports, but also just from the newspaper reports, right, from other people that witnessed it. You know, because you get some people, a reporter at one paper may uh, interview someone that was in the restaurant, right? And well, like someone else might pick up someone that was on the street coming out of the theater with Rackley. And like all these pieces, all these things get pieced together. Um, you know, to kind of to, to kind of tell that whole story of the entire time, and like I said, then it but then it gets disputed because you know, of course, Rackley has a, a story, and you know, then Stone has a story, and Ashby and Ann they all have their own stories. Um, and you have to kind of see where they line up, uh, right? Uh, and you know, Rackley that's where he kind of found himself the odd man out when they started adding up the stories. Is his story was just not. Uh, it just wasn't adding up for him, right? So they had to let him go. Now, there was this other interesting aspect which you describe. Uh, they did find the the four guys. They fingered the first guy first, right? And then they the one who was wounded, and then they tracked down the other three um, sort of as a matter of the investigation and so forth, the guys who scattered into the woods. And I was surprised. This is one of those other twists. Uh, I was surprised, but also kind of not surprised to see that one of them was ex-police. Uh, so uh, tell us about, uh, what was his name again? Robert Thomas, I yeah, believe. Robert was, Thomas. Yeah. What What was his story? Yeah, Robert, Robert Thomas, he had been uh, a chief of police up in Mount Holly, which Mount Holly is a very small town, so he was probably like maybe a chief and a deputy, kind of like an Andy Griffith kind of situation. But again, he was a respectable guy, but he was definitely connected with this, uh, like I said, this burgeoning bootlegging community. Uh, and I, I don't want to like really tell you any uh, like facts without me having here, but he definitely was involved. He was a good cop that had kind of turned bad when this small business of bootlegging started to become bigger business in the 30s. Like I said, we've all we have been a dry count a dry state for since 1908. But that uh, Volstead Act and the rise of these bigger, you know, Chicago, Atlantic City, New York, uh, you know, and in Virginia, you know, uh, these different places, rise of these larger um, criminal networks really turned up the dial on the profit, I guess you would say, 
that that was out there to be made. Well, Rick, I got to tell you, we here at Crime Capsule, we love a bootlegger. And we have spent many an episode chasing those taillights around the backwoods of, you know, southern southern roads and southern counties, you know, from Texas to the Carolinas. And and there's just kind of nothing that gets us happier than getting to, you know, meet yet one more bootlegger. And at this point, I have to, to plug, there's another um, History Press title, which we ran an article on back when Crime Capsule was a website, uh, which is the uh, Illicit Moonshine of North Carolina book by Frank Stevenson and Barbara Mull has some of the best photographs of the homemade stills you know that you see in the backwoods that you'll that you'll ever encounter I mean just the most elaborate you know, magnificent creations and you know everybody's just searching for a little bit of that firewater back in the day and can you blame them <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah and, and again if you think about it again if we're if we're operating from 1908 until the Volstead Act well now if you are looking for alcohol in other states where people in North Carolina used to have to go across the border to get it or buy it from a bootlegger. Now you've already got all these bootleggers in North Carolina who have all those things built, right? They've already got the stills. They've already got the routes they run. And that's why it just became, uh, that's why you saw the crime really tick up because they have been a smaller scale, but now everybody's looking for business. They're looking for that, uh, that source, the distributors, things like that. So, um, yeah, there was money to be made for sure. Yep. Well, and we have to give credit where credit is due. I mean, good heavens, state of North Carolina invented NASCAR to convert all those cars that were running from the cops into something lawful in the first place. That's right. (laughs) You know, we, uh, we do love it. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's turn over to a couple of cases in the middle of your book, back on campus again. Um, these these are a little uh, less entertaining, but they are fascinating because uh, out of the two dozen or so cases that you describe in Chapel Hill M&M, you know, only a few actually happened on campus, but these were very serious cases that happened on campus. And uh, I was going I wanted to ask you kind of about their origins and, and their legacy. So let's let's take a look at Putnam Davis and let's take a look at Cobb Hall. Tell us what happened in these particular uh, encounters. In the case of Putnam Davis, and I, I thought this was fascinating because there's, when we think of, uh, you know, time periods, right? Like we all live in our, you know, we of course live in our time now, but then there were times before where people just looked at things and saw things just differently than we did. And uh, in this case, like you can tell that there's something going on that we would look at today and say, okay, well, like there was definitely some mental health situation going on with Putnam Davis, right? But Putnam Davis in 1954 was a frat, he was a frat brother uh, for the uh, Phi Delta Theta house. Uh, 
it's on South Columbia Street there in Chapel Hill. But, um, you know, he, he's there. He's rooming. I mean, he plays cards. He drinks. I mean, imagine basically like Animal House, right? I think that movie took place in like 1960s. It's like 54. This is a Friday. It's very similar, right? And, you know, so they're partying and drinking, but he was just widely known as just kind of an odd cat, right? Like he didn't say a whole lot. And uh, he was very, uh, let me see if I got, there was a term they used for him. Uh, a lot of people called him like uh, he, he, hypersensitive, I think is what they would say. Like he was just hypersensitive to everything. And he would just either, he'd either get upset or just like kind of uh, disconnect. But uh, now that being said, though, real thin skin, huh? yeah, thin yeah. skin. But that, that being said, he was just considered to be kind of like a quiet, quirky kid, um, you know, that just kind of kept to himself a little bit. But he still, yet he still participated in this these frat things, right? So it's kind of odd to just place him in that place. It's almost like he, uh, you know, again, a guy that came from a wealthy family. Uh, he was an artist, you know. He's a pretty good artist from everything I've read. He was a sculptor. His uh, work had been presented and stuff. So he almost seems out of place in this social environment that he's in. So one has to wonder if, like, his father kind of pushed him in into this environment. Uh, but what happened with him uh, night in May, uh, they're, they're just partying all day. It's just been a big party. They had a big pool party somewhere. They had come back to the frat house. About 2 a.m., uh, you had... Uh, William Joyner and Alan Long were uh, two two of the brothers at the uh, fraternity house, and they roomed together. And uh, Putnam Davis just kind of came and kind of started hanging out with them while they were playing cards and drinking. They played cards. They moved up to their room. They ended up in their little dorm room there, and they're just drinking all night. Uh, Putnam's just sitting there, just kind of listening, not really contributing to any of the conversations, kind of listening to what's going on, just staring at the wall. Uh, morning comes they're kind of yawning uh you know uh, we got stuff to do we better get some sleep but yeah, they've been at it still, all night which is yeah you know, kind of classic frat boy kind of lifestyle but you know yeah. it does, the party does have to end at some point <laughs> yeah absolutely they're kind of trying to lay down hints that maybe you know it's time for a uh, putner to move on um but he doesn't he just kind of sits there well <clears throat> excuse me Alan, he gets up and he goes to the uh, bathroom, and as he's coming through the door, he hears a gunshot. Uh, he hears a couple gunshots, not just one. Here's a couple. Uh, when he comes back in the room, he turns around and he comes in and he looks over and he sees that his buddy William has been shot. Right and then, like his eyes kind of go to the other corner of the room, and there's Putnam Davis sitting on the bottom uh, bunk of their bunk beds holding a pistol. Putnam, Putnam catches his eye, turns the pistol on him, and takes a shot at him, uh, misses the first time, and then as he's run away, shoots him in the back. You know, and he's just like, what? You know, basically, what in the world is going on here? And, uh, you know, a couple more shots come from the room. He's crawling down the hall, screaming for help. Uh, guy, a guy named, uh, they called him Dr. Reet. Uh, Reet May, uh, Matthew Mason, he finally comes up, and he hears that the other brothers kind of hear this stuff, and they come find him. And uh, you know, he says, "Hey, you know, bro, brother David shot me." I was like, "Tony said, brother David shot me." And they go back up there. And by the time you know, like he's even is still in this in this moment, like he's in that frat that frat brother mindset, you know. Right. Everybody's still kind of drunk. They're like, yeah, nah. yeah. Or or you know, they're they're gonna make they're gonna make some sort of joke yeah. out of it. And and here he is crawling around on the ground, saying, "No, really, yeah, he and, shot and me." And just put this in context. 
contacts with the police in the event, not the job of hell. When the police come investigate, there were 50 empty beer cans in this room where these three guys had been all night. So these guys had been, uh, they've been kind of going hard at it, right? But uh, when they went up there and looked, you know, uh, they, you know, Putnam Davis was there, had a small uh, revolver in his hand, had a bullet hole in his head. So he had obviously taken his own life. Uh, they were able to get both the men to the hospital, get them healed up. Thankfully. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thankfully. But there's really there was nothing. They searched this guy Putnam's uh, his uh, his house. They searched his stuff. There was no note, no diary, uh, nothing to indicate that he was going to harm anyone or himself at any point. Uh, but again, everybody said that that night he was just acting just extra, extra odd, you know. And uh, the fact is, like I say, we look at this now, we read this case and we're like, hey, man, like this guy was absolutely something else was there, right? Like something was going on uh, that, that we didn't see. So that takes place at the, at the fraternity house. And then and then just a few years later, elsewhere on campus, we have a very similar scenario. I mean, it's just six, six, seven years later, we have yet another sort of unsolved, unexplained, you know, kind of, you know, mysteries surround another murder-suicide or attempted murder-suicide. I mean, it's just kind of crazy how quickly these things happen back to back. Yeah, and this one was uh, the one that happened at Cobb Dorm, um, which I which I think is cool. It's not cool that it happened, but a lot of my students, because I'm a high school teacher now, I'll go to UNC, and if they ever say, like, oh, I'm staying at Cobb Dorm, I'm like, hey, let me tell oh you a boy. story. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what room are you going to be in? Cause, Do you know what you're getting into? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, there you had two young men. Uh, it's 1961. So it's like, you know, like you said, like very shortly after that, they didn't show up for work at their work assignment. And, uh, you know, the guy calls a place and there was a custodian there. And he was like, well, hey, you know, I just went into I went into their room uh, guy named William Johnson Jr. and James Barnum. He says, like, I just went into the room. They're sleeping. They're still asleep. And uh, he just didn't see them. It was like 11 o'clock, and, you know, it's getting on towards afternoon, and they'd never been late to work before. And the guy that, that worked the place, like, man, that just does not seem right at all. So he tells the people at the uh, cafeterias, like, I'm going to go and walk over there and just check on them. And he does. You know, he, he starts walking that way. As he's getting closer to Cobb, he sees a uh, campus police, and he's like, hey, man, like, you know, I, just, I don't feel good about this. Can you just walk with me over here? They walk there, but as they get to the door, the custodian that he had spoken to, is at, he, he's coming out of the door. And he sees it, and he starts telling, he's like, hey, I went back up to check on these kids because this guy called me, and these guys, I think they're dead, right? And... uh yeah, they go check on it, and sure enough, they were. But what had happened is uh, they said, the, talking to the other people that live in the dorm, they said around midnight the night before was the last time they had saw him. Around midnight, James Barham was in the bathroom, you know, getting ready for bed, brushing his teeth and stuff like that, and he just fell out, just absolutely passed out uh, on the ground. Uh, a lot of the students came and grabbed him, and Johnson was, like, right there. Johnson's a roommate. He comes out. He's like, no, 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 like, he doesn't need to go anywhere. He's fine. I'll take care of him. Just bring him around. He just needs to sleep it off. It was very odd how pushy he was uh, to the other people in the dorm. But again, there had been no indication that he would not take care of him or, or say if something got worse. And were, he was like, hey, just lay him in my bed. So they lay uh, Barham in Johnson's bed. I guess Johnson goes to sleep in his bed. Uh, but the next morning when they, they find them both dead in their bed and, you know, nothing's happened. But they were both they were both dead, but they were both poisoned with cyanide. 
right? There was no cyanide in the room found with them, uh, like no traces of anything, uh, but they both had died of cyanide poison. And was there, I mean, cyanide does have a couple of indicators. Surely there must have been some sort of forensic examination that took place, or what? what where did the investigation proceed from there? Yeah, so when they, of course, you know, like I said, they, they determined that was a cause of death, but they searched, like you said, they, they searched like some uh, cups and things that they found in the room. There was no trace of cyanide in the room at all. So if initially you might look and say, well, these two guys were, someone poisoned both of them, right? Like that's what you initially think is like they must have, uh, someone gave them something to eat or gave them something to drink, but none of that was ever found, and that led to all kinds of speculation because there was some other stuff that had happened on campus uh, about that same time that led people to think that maybe there was more to it. About that same time, uh, there was a sudden death of a photographer named Robert Smith Malden. He was 33 years old. He was there as a graduate student. And uh, he was there as a photographer. And the same day as they were found, he was found dead on his couch. Uh, that They ruled that. They didn't find any sign. Uh, they ruled that as a natural death. It was very unexplained. I mean, you, know, you don't have many 30, 30-some-year-old guys just dropping dead on their couch, right? So that was weird. And then they also linked that back. They had a guy named Ralph Sargent had been arrested for dispensing cyanide pills to students. So this guy had taken cyanide from a a dental laboratory that he had worked at. Uh, He was cooperative with the police, though. He swore that he had never sold any to either one of these guys. Uh, And the police actually came back and said, well, he must not be connected to Malden or the death of these two guys. Now, what you need a cyanide pill for other than this? I was curious. When I read your account, I was very curious as to why this guy thought it would be a good idea to take some of those capsules home with him from the lab, you know, they're, they're not tic Yeah. They're, I mean, there's one thing it's for, I mean, as far as I know, I mean, I'm no chemist. So there, maybe somebody's listening to this and they're like, Oh, well you use this for this. But I, I, there's nothing I've ever heard of before. Right. Then, then, uh, poisoning people. You know, I'm sure it has some practical use somewhere, but not for people carrying around in pill form. Right. I, I don't think you clean your sink with it. Yeah. You know, I don't. I don't think it's like a bathroom scrubber. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, especially not in a pill form, right? Like so, uh, definitely, right. uh, definitely. It seems like that it was it was being sold to people that were probably considering taking their own lives or up to some kind of other like more uh, devious thing. But as you say, he was ruled out of the investigation. Yeah, absolutely. Somehow, who's ruled out of the investigation? And, uh, you know, the police, again, with this being so unsolved and so odd of a situation, it led to all kind of speculation as to what could have happened with these two guys. Uh, there was all kind of speculation that maybe someone had, had given them something or someone had been in the room and snuck out somehow. There was speculation that maybe they had been in a relationship and there was like a, a murder-suicide or a, a joint suicide kind of thing. Again, we're talking about 1961, right? Like, you know, a homosexual relationship is going to be looked at a lot differently then than we would look at it now, right? Um, and there was also uh, speculation that maybe there had been some uh, advances by maybe Johnson to Barham, right? And maybe he had fed him something, like giving him some kind of pill, and then once that took effect, he took something himself to take his own life, right? Once he saw that bear, that, uh, that Barham was going to be dead. So, uh, but again, it's all unsolved and it's all still to this day, just totally 
speculation because the two gentlemen in that room are not around to, to tell anybody about it, right? Yeah, and there were plenty of cases through the years, and I think there's even one or two in your book where, you know, the abiding logic is if I can't have you, then nobody else can. And, you know, that's the one of those sad, uh, sad twists of the human mind that leads to so much suffering for sure. Um, well, I do appreciate the way that you pair those in the sense that, you know, we can see the distance that has been traveled as far as offering mental health services to students uh, in different levels of education, you know, uh, in the present day. And it goes without saying, but we should say it anyway, that if anybody out there in podcast land is struggling with anything, make sure you go and find someone and get some help and, and talk to somebody, you know, we absolutely advocate for that. So um, we, we hope you'll uh, reach out to a trusted counselor or friend or just, you know, somebody that you can unload to just, it means so much. Um, so Rick, let me ask you, uh, this last case is unsolved. Uh, these, uh, these past two have been kind of unsolved as far as we don't really know, you know, kind of what went into, but we do know that there were, we were able to identify at least the, uh, the perpetrators to a degree. Uh, this last case featuring Swellen Evans is the textbook example of an unsolved murder. And this happened right on the campus of Ch- UNC Chapel Hill as well. And it also happened just a few short years after this last murder. So we're now in the mid 60s, aren't we? Yeah, we're in 1965. Uh, we're, you know, hot summertime. It's a summer day, a summer school, UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, Swellen Evans was from Mooresville, North Carolina, and she was uh, 21 years old that summer. She had been going to Catawba College. She had finished her second year there, and she had gotten uh, she had applied and got accepted to UNC Greensboro, uh, which I'm pretty sure had just switched over from being like the uh, I think the uh, woman like women's college, North Carolina Women's College, to being like UNC Greensboro itself uh, proper. And so she was going there and she just, she went to UNC Chapel to just make sure she was called up. Like she did not want to go into UNC Greensboro behind her peers. Uh, but she was definitely every, every account I've read says she was a really friendly girl, but she was not, she was there to go to school, right? Like she didn't have a ton of friends. It wasn't that she was antisocial. It's just for her, it was more important to get done what she needed to get done. And then every chance she got, she would go back home to her parents and to her friends back home. So, uh, not a lot of people really intimately knew her in Chapel Hill, so she was uh, kind. Of, she was kind of there by herself, right? Like, but uh, yeah, she was staying. Uh, she was staying at Cobb Dorm also, but she didn't make it back to Cobb Dorm uh, this day. She was going to head home that summer day, and she had to stop by Alumni Hall to speak to a professor, and then she was going to cut across the Arboretum over to Raleigh Street and then down to Cobb. Uh, but as she's coming out, uh, as she's coming through this arboretum, and I try to think of it, if you've been there recently, you know, the paths are, are well-defined and there's lighting, and I don't know what it looked like in 65. I was going to ask you. I was absolutely going to ask you because I wondered whether those concerns had, you know, made their way into the the consciousness of the groundskeepers or of the administration or, you know, so often in these older universities, you know, in the early part of that century, it's just uh, you don't you don't see that level of recognition that you see today. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like uh, when when I was there last, uh, 
you know, after I had written the book, I'm walking through and I'm I was looking at the way things are set up. And I was like, I wonder if the if this is set up because of Sue Ellen Evans. Right. Like, I wonder what it looked like that 1965 day, because like you said, I don't think that. I don't think that when they did things back then, they sat down necessarily and said, hey, what is the what is the safety aspect of this going to look like? But uh, it was enough foliage and it was enough to conceal someone from her as she walked along because she was literally just snatched up right before she got up to uh, right before she was coming out over on Raleigh Street. And this is the middle of the day. This is like 1230, right? This is That's what's just, so amazing uh, about yeah, it. Yeah, high broad daylight. Yeah. yeah, broad daylight, right. Uh, but, yeah, someone just reached out and grabbed her, uh, tried to pull her in. Now, look, Sue Ellen, she put up a fight. I mean, she fought this guy that had her with all her might. She's screaming. She's fighting. And people heard her. Uh, and what's actually uh, interesting is a couple, uh, there were two nuns on Raleigh Street that heard her. So, I mean, I, I've never seen a nun in Chapel Hill, but I think that's that's kind of an odd part of the story, too. But like two nuns. Rare like, sighting. Ran yeah, I mean, I guess they're there, but maybe maybe they're not still. But uh, they came in, everybody came running. Uh, but as they came in, they never, no one really ever got a good look at the person that had attacked her. But as she's fighting him off and as this person hears people coming, she's pulling away from him and he pulls out a knife and stabs her and hits her right in the heart. I mean, just like, pop, you know, the, that one that one blow just hit her right in the heart. And, uh, you know, it's it's a very it's a very sad scene. She, she collapses on a bed of periwinkles and she's laying there. She's bleeding out. And, and one of the nuns can't, comes and kind of cradles her head. You're right. She's just holding this young girl. This young girl looks up at her and she says, uh, he, he tried to rape me. I think I'm going to faint. And she did what well, she did. She didn't faint, but she closed her eyes. And that's, you know, that's the last time Swellen Evans opened her eyes. Right. Like she uh, she was gone, you know, right there. Um, people people really say, you know, it was too late for her. She passed away, unfortunately. But people really got behind finding who did this? The police came and uh, you know they they snatch up a couple people nearby, but you know questioning them, nobody's really linked. I think they ended up questioning uh, like two over two hundred people over the yeah two I think two hundred fifty leads. They file one hundred sixteen suspects go all over the country. Uh, Five hundred students come out like canvas the place looking for clues for they raise money, uh, but just never. I mean, like you said, it's just totally an unsolved case. Uh, there's probably a box somewhere that has the information in it, you know, that that could probably lead you to have a pretty good idea of who did it. But they were just never, never able to bring any charges on this. Was there ever? It's just an awful. The whole thing is just awful all around. I, I think about those nuns, and I think you know, not all heroes wear capes, right? I mean, just how grateful we can be that they were there at least to minister to her, you know, in her in her last moments. I mean, that's a that's one small silver lining in, in all of these dark clouds. But I wanted to ask you, uh, was there ever any kind of marker or memorial stone, or was there ever anything sort of placed to commemorate uh, Sue Ellen's life at the spot where she died? Uh, no, no I, I don't think there's... I mean, nothing that I've I've seen that was there. That man, you feel like there should be something in a place like that, right? I mean, that would uh, fit right into the arboretum there, and she definitely would deserve something like that. Uh, now, that being said, it's very possible 
you know, people put markers in different ways. It's very possible in 1968, someone went and, and gathered around and planted a, a special tree or something in her honor. That's just been kind of lost to history. But uh, as far as like something with her name on or a stone, I've never seen uh, anything like that. Well, we are grateful to you, Rick, for the way that you honor her memory in such a respectful and sensitive way. You know, it's a sad case, but I thought that you handled it with a a great amount of grace and and dignity, you know, afforded to her. And you never know what kind of... You know, things might pop up down the road or, you know, a deathbed confession or a piece of evidence or, you know, it's just sometimes these cases sleep for decades until they awaken and you never know. You never know. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, uh, I know I've, I spoke to a uh, police investigator about a case one time and he told me, he said, I know exactly who killed this little girl who was, who I was looking into for a case. He said, but knowing and proving are two different things. And he said, I've had to, I've had to, to ride around for 20 years, you know, and, and pass this guy on the road or see him at the grocery store, you know? So it's very, like I said, it's very possible that someone, someone somewhere knows, well, someone knows exactly what, who did this because somebody was who did it, but it's very possible that the police could have known, but because it is a cold case, I mean, this is a case that pops up every once in a while. I mean, this is still a case probably out of all the cases in the book, this is the one that'll that'll resurface at times that the police are looking back into it, right? Or, or that someone's picked up this cold case to try to solve it. So hopefully, hopefully they do because there's someone out there that needs to know to have some closure on this. There's people that knew this young girl and loved her, you know, personally, and uh, I would love to see something happen, uh, some information come out on this. Yeah. Well, I can't think of a better place to. Uh, to end this week than on a note of hope like that. So we sure do appreciate that. And we will be right back here next week to take a look at some of the cases that happened uh, off campus back in town. So we'll look forward to it. Thank you, Rick. All right. Thank you, Ben. Thanks as always for listening. Our guest has been Rick Jackson, author of Chapel Hill Murder and Mayhem, a brand new title published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit ArcadiaPublishing.com or your local independent bookstore. Join us next week as we continue our conversation with Rick and go from gown to town in search of more compelling cases from his book. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, 
where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.